Um, if you want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 18, where Trooper John read all 18 verses for me, <clears throat> um, that's where we're going to be for most of this lesson. I believe it's on. I got a red light. I want to focus on this event, these events, there we are, <laughs> in chapters 18 and 19 specifically this morning, but I want to get some context of this whole story before we get before we get going. So if you remember back in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, that's the chapter where Nathan comes to David after his sin with Bathsheba, right? And he says those words after that story, you are the man. Um, and God forgives David of his sin, absolutely, as David repents of it, and I think that speaks volumes about both of their characters, but God also punishes David for his actions, if you remember. His son that he conceives with Bathsheba in adultery dies. But then also God says he's going to raise up an evil out of David's own household. And that evil is going to come and sleep with his wives in broad daylight. David did this thing in secret. This evil is going to do this thing in broad daylight. It's a very disturbing prophecy. We don't like to think about it very often. But that's kind of the beginning of this story of David and Absalom. Well, chapter 13, which is right after chapter 12, leads us to believe that Amnon, who is David's firstborn son, might be that evil that's going to rise up out of David's household. If you remember, he's lovesick for his brother Absalom's sister Tamar, <clears throat> and he violates her and he humiliates her. It's a horrible thing that he does to her. And Absalom is really angry about it because that's his sister. You did that horrible thing to my sister. So after a few years of Absalom being patient and waiting for the right moment, he finds his time to take vengeance and kill Amnon. So Amnon's not that evil. He's not the evil that's going to come up out of, the, out of David's household. And Absalom runs away in exile to the kingdom of Geshur. Okay, and then chapters 14 and 15, I wish we had more time to go into detail about this, but... They detail how Absalom gets back into Jerusalem, and David, by the end of chapter 15, he is back in the arms of David, in his presence again, in the good graces of his father. And even though he's fortunate to be back in the presence of his father, he kind of begins plotting a little bit. He starts to steal, the text itself says, steal the hearts of the people of Israel by sweet-talking them and saying that if only I were the judge in the land, all of your grievances would be made right. And then in chapter 15, verse 7, we, say, we see that Absalom steals the hearts of Israel so much that he begins his conspiracy against David as he declares himself king at Hebron, where David reigned at first before he came to Jerusalem. David hears about the rebellion, and he leaves the city as an exile, which is kind of a strange reaction. I wish we had more time to talk about it for someone with a army of mighty men who has slayed giants, killed lions with his bare hands. He runs away, essentially. I think he's remembering what God ordained as his punishment, perhaps, about his son rising up out of his house, that this is coming from God. So maybe there's something to that. Um, but there are a lot of parallels in this section of the story about how David leaves the city and how Christ goes toward the cross. 
I would highly encourage you to take the time to look at those. But you think about what Drew said this morning with going to the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane is. David leaves the city and goes up the Mount of Olives. There's a lot of really neat parallels there. Um, But David leaves Jerusalem and he heads towards the Jordan River in chapter 16. And he has some great interactions where people assist him and give him wonderful supplies. And he has a horrible reaction with Shimei, the Benjamite, who throws rocks at him and he insults him and says, this is because of the blood you spilt against the house of Saul. Um, and David doesn't re- retaliate. Another parallel to Christ. And then we move over to the perspective of Absalom. And he, he enters Jerusalem and he fulfills this horrible prophecy spoken against David. And he sleeps with David's concubines in a tent in the sight of all of Israel. And he fulfills that prophecy of David to make himself a stench against his father. And that's at the advice of, his, of David's closest counselor, Ahithophel, if you remember. Ahithophel betrays David and goes after Absalom. And again, as Drew talked about this morning, we have the story of Judas's betrayment, his betrayal, and Ahithophel's betrayal. They go hand in hand with each other. We see a lot of parallels there. Chapter 17, we have the downfall of David's betrayer, Ahithophel, and we have David's spy, Hushai, who has stayed in the city, warned David that Absalom is coming with the whole army to hunt him down. And that's your crash course to get you the context all the way up to chapter 18, where we're going to be for the most of the time this morning. This chapter is the climax of the story of David and Absalom, where everything kind of comes to a head. Absalom, the rebellious son who has murdered his father's firstborn. He's deceived David. He's tried to steal the kingdom from David. He's slept with David's concubines, and now he's attempting to finish off his dad in battle. And the first thing I want you to notice this morning, having said all that, is how David speaks to his commanders when they're ready to go out to battle in verse 5. The king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. How do you feel about David saying those words? Does that request, that command that he gives them, rub you the wrong way at all? I think for a long time I didn't know what to think of what David does here. Is Absalom worthy of gentleness? Oh, he's trying to take your kingdom, David. Stop being a dad for a second. Stop being the father of this son and realize that this guy needs to die to save your kingdom. You've already given him too many chances, and he's failed you time and time again. How many do you think in David's army had that exact reaction in their heads? As as they hear this command, and they're like, you want us to deal gently with him? Well, I think these words highlight an important character trait of David that I believe we're meant to see, and that's this. David cares about his son so much And even after all Absalom has done to him, David is gentle and merciful towards him. Whether we think he should be or whether we think he shouldn't be, he is. That's who David is. And that's actually something that he, a way he acts throughout his entire life. It's a fascinating study to go through the whole life of David and think about all the times these people that don't deserve mercy and don't deserve peace, David offers it to them anyway. Think about Saul 
Think about Ishbosheth. Think about Abner. All these people come to David as enemies, and yet he shows peace towards them and mercy. And that's how David reacts to his son here. Instead of asking his commanders to crush Absalom in battle, he wants his commanders to do what they can to ensure Absalom's safety. It's a strange love, but I think it's a familiar love. I think God loves like this. God has a heart like David, or maybe we should say David has a heart like God. God wants to make peace and show mercy to people that really don't deserve peace or mercy. People that are rebellious and people that have had too many chances. He still offers them gentleness. Aren't the prophets in the Old Testament such a testament to that? Look at Isaiah chapter 30, if you would with me. Isaiah chapter 30. God paints a pretty, a pretty ugly picture of Israel in this chapter. In the first seven verses, he rebukes them for trusting in Egypt too much to save them from their problems. He calls them a stubborn children who carry out a plan, but not mine. Absalom. <clears throat> and then he cranks up the, re- the rhetoric another notch in verse 9 and calls them a rebellious people, lying children, Children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. Absalom. And in verses 10 through 17, he pronounces judgment on them for their terrible attitudes and their terrible behavior. And then in verse 18, there's a therefore. What do you expect that therefore to be? Therefore, I'm done with you. Therefore, you have messed up so much that there is nothing you can do to come back to me. After the rebuke of behavior and attitude has come, after the pronouncement of judgment, therefore, verse 18, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. It sounds a lot to me like David's reaction to Absalom. God has every reason not to put up with a rebellious people that fail him time and time again, but because of his character of mercy and grace, he wants to deal gently with his rebellious son. I hope you think about that more, how merciful he has been to you, even though you've looked for fulfillment in many other places and rebelled against him. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. I think it's from the book, The Problem of Pain. I think it sums up this idea really well. It says, if God were proud, he would hardly have us on such terms, but he is not proud. He stoops to conquer. He will have us, even though we have shown that we prefer everything else to him and come to him because there is nothing better now to be had. David wants his commanders to deal gently with Absalom, even though he doesn't deserve it, and God wants to deal gently with us even though we don't deserve it. The second thing I want you to see in this text is what, what Joab does with this command of David. Joab, the great commander of David, is a fascinating Bible character. He has a lot of good moments, and he has a lot of really, really bad moments. If you get the time to read through the whole book of 2 Samuel, 
it's interesting to see him as almost a foil to David's heart and that he, he takes the direct logical approach and David takes the approach of God. But Joab has this young man come to him during the battle, right? And he says, I saw Absalom hanging on a tree. I know where he is right now. And I love Joab's reaction to that. He says, what? What? You didn't kill him? Why did you even come to me? You should have killed him right there on the spot. And I think there's a lot of lessons we can learn from this young man here who says, um, no, the king told us not to do it, essentially. Even if you gave me all the money in the world, David said not to do it. And Joab's reaction, I love it again, is, I don't have time to talk with you about this. So he leaves, and he goes and kills Absalom with his armor bearers. Joab defies the orders of the king and doesn't show David's mercy. He follows his own logic and thinks it would be better for David if Absalom was dead. He doesn't even hesitate in this chapter to plunge the three javelins into Absalom who is stuck in the tree. Joab was the commander of David's army, and he fought a lot of great battles for them. You can read sections about the tremendous amount of faith he has in God in in the midst of these battles, and yet he defies his king here. And in doing so, he becomes one of the villains of the story. What was Joab's problem when we get down to it? I think his problem was that he did not understand the heart of his king. He didn't understand the mercy that David wanted to show toward his son and thought it foolish, so he took matters into his own hands to help the king. I fear that I'm like Joab sometimes, that we're like Joab sometimes. We do these great things for the Lord, and we're fighting on the right side, we're fighting for the right church, but we just don't understand the heart of our king. So we defy him in order to help him. How might that look in our day-to-day lives? How about in how you talk to people about what you believe and what they believe? Are you a Joab in that instance? God, I know you told me to deal gently with these people, but we just need to defeat that false doctrine. So I'm going to do whatever it takes. However, I have to act to win this argument and feel good about my victory for myself. I mean, my victory for you, God. That sounds like a person who doesn't know the heart of his king. A person who's defying his king, the king who laid down his life in gentleness and self-control for his sheep. How about how you treat people that have fallen into sin? Are you a Joab sometimes? God commands us to be gentle about bringing them back into the fold and to run after them like a lost sheep. But instead, sometimes, wanting to make it very clear that we're not associating with a sinner, we turn our backs on them in disgust, or we shake our fists at them in anger. God wants us to be merciful like him. I think David understands this. At the end of his life, after God has delivered him from all of his enemies, David writes this song in chapter 22, which is also a psalm in the book of Psalms. One of the things he says about God in verse 26 of chapter 22 is, with the merciful, 
you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely, and with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. If we're not merciful like Joab was not merciful, we really need to stop and examine whether we're going to receive mercy ourselves. And Scripture tells us emphatically that we will not. So how do we get better in that? we got to understand the heart of our king more. If we can appreciate the mercy that he has freely shown to us, we can appreciate the mercy that we can freely show to others. Look at Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7, it has this beautiful description of God's mercy in chapters 18 and, or verses 18 and 19, Micah chapter 7, if you want to turn there. I really love the New American Standard version of this. It says, Who is a God like you, who pardons wrongdoing and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again take pity on us. He will trample on our wrongdoings. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. We know that describes God. I think we're all convinced of that this morning. That's why we're here. But does that describe me? Does that passage describe me? Does that describe you? If I'm striving to be like God, could it be said of me that Michael pardons wrongdoing? Michael delights in mercy. Michael will not retain his anger forever. Let's examine our hearts and see if the mercy there aligns more with Joab or more with the heart of David and and God. But Joab just doesn't understand this, and he doesn't care about David's reason for sparing Absalom. So we see in the story, with with the help of his armor bearers, he does kill Absalom. He pierces Absalom with three javelins, and then his armor bearers finish Absalom off. And Joab blows the horn, and the battle is over. And David doesn't know about Absalom's death yet. So if you remember, there's this weird story with two messengers. Joab sends one messenger, and then another guy comes and says, I really want to go tell David too. And he's like, you sure about that? Because I don't think David's going to be happy about this. And he's like, no, I really want to go. And he's like, okay, go. So he outruns the other guy. And David's like, what happened to my son? I want to know. And he chickens out. He says, I'm not totally sure what happened to him. He's like, okay, stand next to me, and we're going to wait for this next guy. And the second guy comes, and he's more truthful, and he tells David, essentially, your son is dead. And I want to read David's reaction when he finds out about Absalom. Look at verse 31 of chapter 18. It says, and behold, the Cushite, who's the second messenger, came, and the Cushite said, good news, good news for my lord the king, for the king, for the lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, 
my son Absalom. Would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. I was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal and who are ashamed when they flee in battle. One more verse. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. There's great victory on this day. David is delivered from his son's rebellion, and he eventually returns to Jerusalem after this story. But on the day of the battle, what overshadows the victory? David's mourning. Nothing can change the fact that his son is dead. We can debate over whether Joab's response to David after this was correct. David, you shouldn't be mourning. It's time to celebrate this victory. But what a day full of sorrow for David. His commander has defied him. His son has been killed in the field of battle. And this whole mess particularly has been unraveled because of his own sin. So David certainly feels regret and grief and misery in this moment. So what do we learn about God in this? Well, I think this is the part of the story where we see an echo of Christ. Have you thought about how the details in this story pair the rebellious son Absalom with Jesus Christ? Absalom is a son of David. Jesus is a son of David. Chapter 14 and verse 25, I'm cheating a little bit here, but we didn't read that, but that tells us that Absalom is physically without blemish. It doesn't say that about many other people in the Bible, but Absalom is without blemish. Jesus Christ is without blemish. Absalom hangs from a tree suspended between heaven and earth. Jesus hangs from a tree suspended between heaven and earth. Absalom is pierced in three places as he hangs on the tree. Jesus is pierced in three places as he hangs on a tree. I think we're supposed to see those similarities of Absalom and of Christ, but I think more striking are the differences in their stories, especially in their deaths. When Absalom dies, they throw him under a heap of stones The story states that he has no descendants, so the line of Absalom is cut off forever. A meaningless death with no legacy. And David is distraught that he's never going to see his son again. He mourns and weeps over his loss, overshadowing the victory of the day. But how is it in the story of Christ? I think there's a reversal here. When Jesus dies, they bury him under a stone And many are distraught as there is no victory on that day, or so we might think. But that's not the end of the story. There is no need for inconsolable grief in the story of Christ. He dies, but he rises again. The stone does not hold him like it holds Absalom. The mourning is overshadowed by joy and victory. While Absalom's line is cut off forever, Jesus' line endures forever through his resurrection. Have the cut-off son, the true son of David. 
What a beautiful reversal of this story. Where there once was grief, there is now joy through a death that means something. And a death that is temporary because of the great resurrection. I hope we realize the significance of that in our own lives. That we have a victorious Savior who allows us to follow the path of death to life. Our deaths can mean something like Christ's. And they're temporary like Christ's. I think David sums up these reversal feelings really well in Psalm 30, and that's where we're going to end this morning. If you want to look at Psalm chapter 30, we're going to read the whole psalm. But just think about that reversal language that, that David shows here. Psalm 30, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. I love these verses here. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Praise the God of Jesus Christ's resurrection that has turned what should be mourning into dancing. I hope you're reminded of how merciful and victorious God is this morning. If you aren't aligned with him, you're on the losing side. And even if you are on the right side, you might need a heart change. <clears throat> Why not submit yourself to the victorious one who will transform your mourning over death and sin to dancing over new righteousness and eternal life forever? God is certainly waiting to be gracious to you. If we can help you in any way this morning, we ask you that you'd come forward now as we stand, as we sing the invitation song.